Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. I guess the first podcast that certainly for me of the summer. So uh, happy summer to you. Obviously, we've got some busy times and uh, across the board with families and stuff like that. Hopefully, we'll be able to join you on your trips and stuff on the podcast with you. But in the meantime, uh, let me remind you that there is a website as well that goes along with this podcast. It's wealthformula.com. Lots of different opportunities there with regards to signing up for various lists and resources, books, webinars, blah, 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 all that stuff. Check it out. This podcast is only part of it. And part of, you know, one of the lists that you can join on there is the accredited investor group where we obviously we invest together. That's what we do. It's a club that invests together and you have to be accredited. So, so the name is pretty straightforward. At any rate, uh, speaking of investing, let us talk for a moment about a, a question, which is what makes investors really good investors who they are and or or for that matter what does you know somebody who's an entrepreneur who's got like all these creative ideas or whatever what makes them tick and what makes them good at what they do and certainly that's a big question right because it's certainly there's a genetic component there's a personality type there is opportunity there's a good idea there's supporting cast but you know one thing that i think is critically important for people who are investors or whatever that are very successful, or at least certainly a common denominator that I've run into, is that they have a really broad knowledge base and a lot of curiosity, like in the sense of, you know, being interested in a lot of different things, knowing a lot of different things. You know, it goes back to this whole thing that people talk about how Warren Buffett reads so many books apparently he used to read like 800 to a thousand pages every single day or in early on in the early days of Berkshire Hathaway and apparently now spends about 80 percent of his time reading as well Bill Gates you know he supposedly reads at least one book a week and all non-fiction he's just trying to learn stuff he's learning new ideas right and they're not like reading books about finance or reading books about all sorts of things about the world about ideas and philosophy and medicine and uh, the arts and you know I think uh, it's funny because on a much smaller level I believe that my uh, broad background as a student of history you know as a, a medical doctor uh macroeconomic theory enthusiast these things have all played a role for me personally to give me a larger 
perspective and the world. And it's what involves what's involved in part with my investments. It's how I see the world, right? And a good example of that, like, you know, how broad perspective changes things. Just take, for example, the current inflationary environment. Most of us are probably not old enough to necessarily have experienced it, what it was like in the 1980s. I was a kid, so I mean, I, I didn't know what was going on. But understanding the similarities and differences between what happened then and what's happening now, it certainly provides perspective on an otherwise unpredictable world, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a knowledge of history and, and of reading of what happened in the past because, and again, it's just history, but history, you know, it may not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And if you know it, it gives you a different perspective on the world. History is not the only thing that can teach you about the world, of course. I mean, I take lessons from my days as a surgeon and understanding the idea of economy of movement and less variables and all these types of things to navigate the the world on a daily basis. Anyway, the more you learn about life, the larger arsenal you'll have to confront the problems and challenges of life, both professionally and personally. And I truly believe that. My guest today is an interesting guy. He is truly sort of a man, arts and letters. Uh, his name is Vitaly uh, Nelson, and he is known uh, as a very, very savvy investor. However, he is uh, also got a, an interesting background, and uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to. So when we come back, Vitaly Nelson. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest in Wealth Formula podcast is Vitaly Katzenelson. Now, Vitaly was born in the USSR, immigrated to the United States with his family in 1991. He joined a Denver-based value investment firm, IMA, in 1997, ultimately became chief investment officer in 2007 and CEO in 2012. Now, Vitaly is also known as a writer, and uh, he's written two books, on investing previously, active investing in the little book of sideways markets, which we can talk about. And also, um, most recently, a game that's not necessarily just about investing. It's called uh, Soul in the Game, which has gotten rave reviews from from some uh, very big names, not only in uh, economics, but uh, in the arts. So, uh, Vitaly, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You know, I want to start out 
you know, because this is a economic, macroeconomic, personal finance type show, focusing on sort of your, you know, your specialty, because, you know, as most of my group, I think is, you know, uh, they're either into real estate investing, or maybe they have some money in the equity markets, but they're not really actively managing anything. And so, there's a lot of terminology, a lot of lingo that goes in to various types of investing. How do you describe uh, value investing? And and I know that you have uh, in your book described it with an, al- an analogy with fiddle eye on the roof. If if that's something you're willing to to do, sure. it may help us, uh, you know, less sophisticated individuals. Uh, I'll give you a, a kind of a, a more colorful story about this. So. Um, in 2006, I, I was teaching, in addition to you know, right, you know, uh, being an analyst, I taught an investment class at the University of Colorado. And um, this was my sixth year teaching a class. And I kind of, at this point, I stopped preparing for lectures because if I prepare for lectures, like, you know, I would just not be interested. So I just, you know, so I would come to lecture, open with the syllabus, say, and just start talking. So, so I show up to class uh, one day and it you know, says, I have to talk about discounted cash flow analysis. And so I started talking about, well, how like, and discounted cash flow analysis basically is the foundation of investing, not just value investing, any kind of investing. If you're a real estate investor, that should be foundation of your investing as well. So the analogy I, I would use was if let's say you're a farmer, and you're about to buy a cow and you need to figure out how much would you pay for a cow. And then you start looking, you know, so, so what you have to do, you have to identify the cash flows that the cow will generate for you, you know, as a farmer. And it's very simple, right? For the most part, you'd say, you, you know, you, you know, it's going to produce a milk for six or seven years. So, and you know, and then it's going to have a terminal value, which is basically when the cow, either you take it to a butcher or to a pet in zoo, your choice. And, um, and, and and then you start looking at risks. Okay, what are the risks of these cash flows? Well, you could have fertilizer, fertilizer prices going up. That's a risk. Milk prices may decline. That's a risk. And you start looking at risks and you start trying to identify what are the worst case cash flows? What are the best case cash flows? What's the worst case terminal value? What's the, you know, uh, what's the best case terminal value? And that gives you the range of values for a cow. And the reason, you know, and I, so anyway, so this is, and so this applies actually to any investing. Um, if you, like, in fact, I would argue that value investing is very, very similar to real estate investing, unless you are just buying houses just to sell them, you know, a week later or two weeks later, then you're just looking for greater full to buy a house right away. But if you're buying a house, and you look like, and you let's say you were going to rent it, right? Then you start looking at, uh, you know, what's going to cost you, what cash flows it's you know it's going to generate for you, and you start looking. Okay, well, is that that return I'm going to get? That return I'm going to get is it going to be greater than my cost of capital? So this is you know so the you you so the if you look at the kind of basic tenets of value investing, um, then in fact. Once you know, you know they are incredibly similar to you know real estate investing, kind of a intelligent real estate investing. Let's talk about this. First of all, first of all, you have a long-term time horizon, okay? Which is in real estate, you kind of forced into it because you can't just buy and sell right away. 
takes time. You know, okay. Number one. Uh, number two, you analyze stocks not just pieces of paper, but as businesses. Okay, because what happens in the stock market, this daily liquidity, it's a bug and a fissure at the same time. It's a bug because uh, it's it's no, it's a feature because it gives you know, it gives you ability to buy and sell very easily with very low transaction costs, which I'm sure real estate investors would love to have that. However, it's it's a bug because it turns a lot of investors into gamblers. Um, and then you, and, I, and there's, there's, there is more, but the third one I think is very important. You look for margin of safety. When you're buying a house, which uh, let's say you're going to sell in, 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 a couple, in a couple of years, um, you want to make sure that you buy it at the price that in the worst case, if the market is not going to be as good, or if the economy goes into recession, you're still going to be able to sell and at least break even. So that means when you, you bought it cheap enough, so you have margin of safety. So those are kind of the tenants of value investing. And uh, so they're very, very similar to, you know, kind of to intelligent real estate investing as well. Uh, when you buy stocks in publicly traded markets, um, you know, again, as somebody who's not in that space, uh, you know, right now we hear a lot about how the valuations are kind of off the charts. Um mm-hmm. Is that, um, is there, I mean, is it, is it, are you using sort of relative, you know, terms to make decisions Mm -hmm. in stocks right now? Are you, are you as a value investor, just looking at things and saying, oh gosh, there's really just nothing to buy right now. And I'm just curious on how that works. Cause I, tell me that. So there are two questions in this actually. One is, do I use relative valuation tools or absolute valuation tools? And the second question is the market, you know, kind of, can I buy, can I still, in this very expensive market, can I still find individual stocks? So I'd argue, and actually in my books, uh, both in active value investing and in a little book of sideways markets, I discussed this. In, in, the, in the environment we're in today, relative valuation tools are very dangerous. Because relative valuation tools are basically tied the value of the you know, like you are try, you're basically saying this asset is cheap because it used to trade at higher valuation and now it trades at lower valuation, therefore it's cheap. The problem is when the value of the past was set by low interest rates, this value may not be the same, you know, they, that value may not be the same when interest rates are higher. So you want to buy an asset uh, when you when when we value asset value assets, you want to value them on was it what is it worth in a semi normalized interest rate environment. So that therefore you start switching. So we spend very little time. I mean, I, I glance what it used to trade in the past, but to me that's a very weak in this, in itself. You know, it has a very little information. Mostly, we spend a lot of time looking at what is that asset worth in absolute sense, and then we want to buy it at the discount to what it's worth. So that's a quite you know how difficult um, is that to do right now? To, to, that that must be quite difficult to do right now, though, to buy things at a discount. Is there? Think about this. So there's the United States. I don't know. There are three or five thousand stocks globally at another ten thousand. I'm kind of generalizing. So in my portfolio, I only need thirty. So therefore, 
and this is like to answer your second question, I, th- I think overall mar- the U.S. markets are very expensive, even despite the you know recent declines. You, like European markets are not as expensive, and uh, European European markets are uh, less expensive. So we look globally and trying to put portfolio of thirty stocks that are still they still have margin of safety. So we have about 60% invest. Uh, if you look at our portfolio, about 60% in the United States, you know, 30, 40% uh, European stocks, you know. And, uh, but again, I just, just like, think about it. If you were, if you needed to buy a house, like you're a real estate investor and let's say you can buy a house anywhere in the United States. I'm sure there are markets like in Florida and California that's probably extremely overvalued. But I'm sure there are markets, I don't know, in the Twin Falls, Idaho, they, you know, nobody cares about them. And you can find, you know, and you can buy a house, you can find a house that trades at 60 cents on a dollar. Okay. So you just have to be very um, diligent and very patient. Got it. Got it. Um, let's shift a little bit over to, you know, the the, the new book, because it, it, it sounds like it's getting a lot of really great reviews. Uh the book itself is called Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. Why did you write this book? So that's a great question. So I almost have to give you kind of a background why, how I started writing. So I started writing in 2004. Um, I, the street.com was looking for financial writers. And I, I, I found myself where like... Uh, I wanted to give it a try. So I started writing for the studio.com and I fell in love with writing. I really, I found that this is, I discovered that this is something I really like doing. And for a long time, I just wrote about investing. And if you think, you know, I had it, I had all the reasons to do this because I had a, you know, a graduate and a graduate degree in finance. I had a CFA and that was my day job. Um, but over time, so, but I would write these articles. And then, so I started with three.com and then would write for market watch. I would write for institutional investor. I wrote for financial times and other publications. And I would take these articles and send it to my friends. And first my list was literally 20 people. And I would, and in the beginning of the, uh, of the, you know, in the, of the article, I would start talking about my personal life and I would just have maybe, maybe have a few paragraphs over time. I, you know, my articles, you know, these emails turned where I spend a lot more time talking about personal, my personal life. Um, and my reader base expanded from 20 people to hundred thousand people. And, um, and I started to get emails from readers saying, Vitaly, I actually uh, came to uh, reading your articles because of your investment insights, but I'm staying because of what I learned about life from your life articles. And uh, so I've been writing for almost 18 years. And over the years, I wrote a lot of articles about life. And uh, my readers encouraged me to turn them into a book. And I always resisted that because I just, I'm a money manager. I'm a money manager. <laughs> uh, I'm a money manager who's supposed to be writing about, you know, investing. And this, and then in August, 2020, I, I wrote this. Um, so I, like in addition to, uh, in, in addition to love for investing and writing, you know, and, and, and love and, 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 and uh, writing about uh, life, I love classical music. So I, and I write a lot about classical music. 
So I wrote this, I was writing this article about Tchaikovsky. And Tchaikovsky wrote this uh, six, uh, six that, uh for uh, f- for violence, which is basically a piece, you know, written for, uh, composed for strings. And I, I read memoirs of Tchaikovsky where he struggled writing this, this piece. And I realized that the struggles Tchaikovsky experienced composing it are very similar to any writer goes through when he writes. This is like, it's universal because it's a creative activity and any creative activity has a lot of, uh, there is a lot of doubt, a lot of frustration. And, I, and I, so I wrote this article basically saying, this is what I go through as a writer when I write. And when I finished writing, I realized that my experience, strug- my, my struggles are very similar to what other people face as well when they write. And I, then I looked back and I realized over the years, there were so many articles um, uh, that to, if I could actually can put them together, I can turn them into a book that would help people. The, so my initial, my initial, initial reason for me, uh, uh, why I started writing the book was very uh, uh, idealistic. I just really wanted to help people. And then I, when I, um, so I put my essays together and I was going to self-publish them, self-publish them. I got an email from, a, uh, from Harriman House, which is a British publisher, who I talked to a couple of years before about it, you know, writing an investment book. They asked me, how's that book going? And I said, well, I don't have that book that I was going to write, but I have this new, new book idea. I sent them a collection of my essays. And to my surprise, they said, let's publish it. So now I was a bit shocked because I started to question their sanity. So I went to a few of my friends. I went to Morgan Housel and I went, uh, I went, I went to, uh, uh, to another friend who published the book with them, Lawrence Cunningham. And I said, what do you think of, the, of this publisher? They said, they're great. So anyway, so I, this is how this book came about. And this book is basically has six sections, uh, five sections. Uh, I talk about the beginning autobiographical. Then I talk about uh, my self-improvement journey. Then I talk about stoic philosophy. Then I talk about creativity. And then I talk about classical music composers from Tchaikovsky to uh, Chopin. And then I kind of, to my surprise, I take all these concepts and bring them and some of them, I kind of bring, bring them all together. That how to actually uh, have, a, have a meaningful life, having all this in your life. Creating, you know, creativity, uh, self-improvement, you know, all this, all, all these things. Well, there was one, uh, I guess, during this process, you you discovered or you really got into um, stoicism. Yeah, talk talk a little bit of what what exactly is stoicism? What about it uh, attracts you, and and ultimately, like, how do you how does it all relate to your personal and business life now? I was. I heard a lot about Stoic philosophy over the years, and I've seen quotes by Epictetus or Seneca or Marcus Aurelius, and they always sounded very intelligent and very smart. And then there was this one concept I read that completely blew me away. And that's really, in fact, I was almost done with the book. And I stopped writing the book. I emailed my publisher. I said, I really want to write about Stoics. So let's postpone deadline indefinitely until I finish writing about Stoics. So Epictetus, uh, so the, let me talk about Stoic philosophy. It's a, basically, it's a, it's a, 
ancient philosophy that's about 2,000 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, that was started by Zeno. Um, Zeno was a, uh, a very wealthy trader, uh, who merchant, you know, a merchant trader, who basically lost his ship in the shipwreck. So he went from being very wealthy to very poor overnight. And uh, he started this philosophy in um, in Athens, in a place, uh, you know, and you know, he was basically, you know, in a, uh, I, I can never say the name of the place, but basically it's called, called Arch, you know, in, a, in, the, in Stoa. And that's how Stoic philosophy came about. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he was the founder, but we know a lot less about him, but we know about his followers, which is basically Epictetus, who was a slave, uh, Seneca, who was one of the richest people in, uh, in Rome. Uh, he was advisor to, uh, to, uh, uh, to emperors. Uh, he, uh, he was a senator. He was a playwright. And then we have Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor of Rome. So those are basically the founders of Stoic philosophy, or at least the writings of their writings are the ones that survive to this day. Okay, so Epictetus was a slave, and he had this concept called dichotomy of control. And that's really what attracted me to Stoicism. And he basically says there are things that are up to us and there are things that aren't. And the things that are up to us is, is what we, you know, what we do what we can do, everything else is external. So in your life, uh, in your life, um, let's say you're studying for an exam, um, or you, you, or, uh, what, you, you, what you can control is how much you study, how well you study, how, how, uh, how much you prepare for the exam. Okay, you can control your effort of that. The, the result you get, you have zero control over that. Okay, so you could you have control in preparation, you, you know you can try to do the best you know the uh, when you show up like I remember I took a CFA exam, uh, I had a, you know I had some control over how well I slept before the exam, at least I could I could I could put in an effort to have a good sleep, okay, I you know I could uh, bring two calculators to the exam so I had you know, but I had zero control if they're going to be air conditioning in the room or not. Uh, if there will be noise in the room or not. So all those things were external. So, and, and, and this, this applies to this external, internal, external com, uh, applies to everything we do. When some, when you, people are rude to you, there is nothing you can do about that. that you know, that's external behavior. What you have control over how that impacts you and how you respond. Um, so, so that's an example of Stoic philosophy, and it's much richer than that. It's a very rich philosophy. So tell me, and though, to, that there was something specifically that seemed to have, have you know, some philosophical piece that uh, really resonated with you. What was that? I realized the Stoic philosophy could provide me, could, could reduce the volatility of the negative emotions in my life. Right. If I start looking at things that this is, you know, this is under my control, this is not under my control. So just very quick story. Uh, I just, uh, I just came back from New York and um, uh, my daughter and I took my son to uh, 
birthright trip to Israel. So we had to drop him off in New York, spend two days there, and then he was go to, could go to Israel. Um, I bought tickets for a plane. And, uh, and so the, our plane was supposed to land in New York at five o'clock. At eight o'clock, we bought very expensive tickets to go to Metropolitan Opera. The plane landed on time, but then it ended up sitting on tarmac for two hours because of thunderstorms. There were no, all the gates were closed, so we could not get off the plane. So if I'm late to the opera, we'll lose, we'll lose a lot of money. So at this point, at this point, I could either start freaking out and, you know, you know and, uh, and get nervous, et cetera, or I could basically say, there's absolutely nothing I can do about this. I, I, I could worry about this. I could get frustrated. I could yell at the flight attendant. It's not going to make a difference. Or I can just basically accept the fact that's not up to me. And all I can do is just try to do the best job I can to get to the upfront time. If I can make it, I'll make it. If not, well, there's absolutely, either I worry or not, the outcome is still going to be the same. Right. That would be an example of that. So, because the only thing I could control is my behavior or how I interpret what happened to me. And at the end of the day, we actually did, you know, ended up not making it to the opera. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Opera was kind enough to refund us the money actually, which, which was a nice surprise. Yeah. But, but again, that's, that's an example of how my behavior where it just reduced, it's reduced kind of the volatility of my blood pressure. That's funny. I, um, I feel like that's been sort of my philosophy the last couple of years. And I thought it was just because I was getting old, but maybe I'm an underlying stoic and I didn't realize. I, <laughs> I was well, <laughs> but you know, what's interesting about stoic philosophy, you read this, you read this and it's, you know, it's been written 2000 years ago. Yeah. And it sounds like it's going to be written yesterday. Right. Because sure. humans really don't change. We have new fancier tools, but at the, at the end, Emotions don't humans. change. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of emotions, the last time we tried to connect, yes. uh, it was right at the beginning of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. And um, I know that affected you very much. And I'm mm -hmm. curious if you can kind of give us a little bit of, you know, what that experience was like and related to some of the philosophies that you that you've been talking about. Yeah, well, I, I think this is where I failed. My stoicism failed me completely. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, right. Um, no, actually, it's kind of funny. The You and I were going to meet, uh, you know, it was scheduled weeks before the invasion. And I remember I look at my calendar and I, and I have a podcast scheduled, and now a podcast scheduled, and I show up to the podcast and you start asking me questions about investing. And I realize that I just, my brain I was, was so overwhelmed. I was so overwhelmed what's going on in Ukraine. I just like talking about investing felt so irrelevant. It just, you know, sure. um, at the time. And, uh, so, so the, so let's, so I, so I was born in Russia and, uh, I left Russia in 1991 when I was 18 years old. So what's important to understand is when I was like for Russians, World War II was an incredibly, incredibly dramatic experience. 20 million um, Soviet Union citizens died during that war. It's important to say Soviet Union, not just Russians, but Ukrainians, Belarusians, right. and, you know, and the Moldovans, uh, Moldovans, et cetera. Um, and um, like for, uh, for Russians, March, uh, May 9th, which is the victory day, is the day that is 
you know, the, you know, the World War II ended what's almost 70 something years ago. That day is still celebrated today as if uh, it was, you know, uh, you know, you know as, as if it just happened uh-huh. a few years ago. So the reason it's important is that because I grew up hating Nazis. I grew up hating Nazis because they came to my country. They killed millions of people. And we, and it was unprovoked, it was unprovoked, unprovoked attack. Right. Okay. Now I look at what Russia kind of, uh, I looked at Russian behavior towards Ukraine and I realized they Russian behavior is no different from Nazis. And to me, that was, it was shocking. It was, I was, I was just in complete shock because Ukrainians did absolutely nothing uh, to Russians. And, uh, and the first, you know, and, uh, and then was, what was interesting as I, as, I would, as I watched the war develop, then I suddenly started to see that Ukrainians could actually win this war. And um, before the war, there was a kind of uh, this assumption that Russia had this huge army, well-trained army, et cetera. And what we saw that the army is not well-trained that the uh, the strategy is very flawed. Uh, one thing one thing I learned that they had five different generals con- conduct five different parts of the army, uh-huh. with, and with very little communication between each other. Uh, we start seeing that the tanks are like the, their supply lines were not very good, um, and so they, so they would just leave tanks in the middle of the road because. They were out of gas. Uh, out of gas, and um, and the most importantly is that Ukrainians fought, and because Ukrainians fought as if as if their country was invaded by Nazis. Sure. And um, and what we discovered that when Putin basically said between you know three things before the war that have did not exist, but exist today. Number one, he was saying that NATO was this anti-Russian alliance that wanted to fight Russia. Well, in reality, that was not true because NATO was basically a sclerotic organization that didn't have a purpose because it didn't have an enemy. So Europeans did not feel like they wanted to spend a lot of money on the, on the military because there was no purpose for that. Well, today NATO is a very different organization. Right. And well, then now the Finns and the Swedes and every you know everybody who is neutral uh, all of a sudden feels like there's an enemy that they need protection against, right? So you're so that's the the paradox. No, that's exactly right. No, I think that's exactly right. Number two, I would argue, and I can't prove this, but I I probably get right about this. If Russia did this invasion in 2014, it probably would have turned out the way Putin expected it, you know, to you know, to happen in 2022. Because at the time, two things. First of all, Ukraine did not almost have an have a, had a very very small army, not you know. And um, number one, and number two, Ukrainian identity as a as a nation did not really exist. It was still kind of looking, for, you know, it it was still kind of a Russian Ukraine identity. You know, it's, you know, it's, um, but the, after 2014 invasion, where after Russia took Crimea from Ukraine, after the war in the Donbass and Lugansk, that actually created Ukrainian identity. And, and we can see this very clearly because yeah. 
Kharkiv city right next to Russian border, which is probably 60, 65% kind of you would, would call Russians. Mm-hmm. The Russians in the city looked themselves as, as Ukrainians fighting against Russian army. So, uh, so the Putin basically has created the Ukrainian identity that did not exist to that extent, at least uh, before the war. And number three, uh, Putin you know, for a long time was talking about fifth column in Russia, where there is a lot of sleeper cells, etc., that are kind of enemy of the states are there. And I don't know if it's true, if it was true or not, but we didn't see that. You know, we didn't we didn't see any actions uh, by the fifth column. Well, now we see there was a there are explosions happening all over Russia. Like there was a this some uh, there was airport very far in Siberia that was blown up. You know, you know, which is it's, it seems like it's the Russians kind of rebelling little by little against kind of their government. So anyway, so this is this is where we are today, and. Um, so I, as I look at this, you know, as I, as I, I'm, but I, anyway, but I'm still shocked that there is a war happening between Russia and Ukrainians because when I was growing up in Russia, what's important to understand is that th- there was very little difference between, like, ethnically between Russians and Ukrainians, or Belarusians for this matter, because we, it's a, if you see Russian or Ukrainian on the street, you would not know the difference. Uh, and in fact, it's a, it's probably as close as you get to civil war because, you know, the, yes, you know, they share the same culture, you know, the Russians, Ukrainians have a very similar culture, uh, you know, or probably almost every single Ukrainian speaks Russian. Uh, so it is, uh, I just could not imagine this war happening. Like, right. How does, um. Going full circle, I guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, tell me, tell me how this conflict, uh, how it all feeds into what you do in your day job. We, uh, there's a saying, um, we worry macro and we invest micro. So as, a, as an investor, I have to be aware what's going on in the world, in the, in the economy, global economy. Right. And then I have to take this. And uh, when I make decisions on individual companies, I want to make sure the companies I invest in uh, are going to survive anything the global kind of the, the economy throws at them. Sure. Right. And um, so bef- even before this conflict, we were struggling from, infl- you know, from, uh, from inflation. Right. Um, and the, we had a somewhat was uh, kind of, tr- you know, kind of short-term inflation from supply chains. Some of that was a longer-term inflation uh, that you can argue was caused by labor markets. Uh, now that, you know, interest rates were already going up before this, which is you know, very inflationary. Because when interest rates go up, the cost of everything that has to be financed rises. So that's inflationary. Well, um, the war in Ukraine uh, added more to this worry because now you have fertilizer prices are going up, doubling and tripling. So think about this. So the basically two major fertilizers are nitrogen-based and, uh, and potash-based. Belarusia is the largest export, a second, a second in, uh, Russia and Belarusia are the second and third largest exporters of potash, uh, which is used for fertilizers. Mm-hmm. 
And um, nitrogen, which is another fertilizer, is based on um, is 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 based on uh, natural gas. Uh, natural gas. So natural gas prices have doubled, you know, because of the war. So because remember, Russia is one of the largest producers of oil and natural gas. So it's produced about I forget 11 million barrels a day out of 100, about 100 million barrels a day consumption globally. So about 10%. So as as a uh, as the West placed sanctions on uh, Russian oil, and over time reduced consumption of Russian natural gas, that means uh, uh, oil prices will stay at elevated level, and so will natural gas prices. So we are going. So the higher fertilizer prices means that we're going to have higher calorie prices. Any any calories that be meat, milk, corn, mm-hmm. etc. Globally, sure. and that's going to impact. Um, what we find is that the food prices impact richer countries less than impact uh, poor countries. So I'll give an example. In Ukraine, uh, f- about maybe forty percent of discretionary income goes to pay for food. In the United States, the number is close to eight percent, down from you know, 17% of, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So um, as I look at the portfolio construction, we are being uh, basically on companies that are uh, delinked to the health of the economy. So in other words, we own a lot of companies that are, like, we own a lot of defense companies. We own them before the pandemic, I mean, before the war, and, you know, and, and we added more to them uh, when the war started. We own companies uh, pipelines or companies that whose health is basically, it doesn't matter what's happening to the consumer, what's happening to the economy, the demand for uh, their products is not going to change. Right. And also, since we are facing an inflation environment, you want to own companies that have pricing power. Interesting stuff. Um, we could talk forever here, Vitaly. You have such a breadth of, um, of, of knowledge and uh in uh, in interest, but um, I want to make sure we let you get back to you know other things in life here. So um, the book again, the most recent book, uh, which is getting, I mean, it's it's got incredible reviews from people like Nassim Talib, General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, I mean, so congratulations on that, and uh, interested. I'm excited to to get a chance to read it. It's called Soul in the Game the art of a meaningful life. And that's not out yet. Is that right? It's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be out June 22nd. Yeah. And if there's and, an interest in pre-ordering that, how do you do that? Well, you can do it on Amazon. However, if you go to soul in you pre-order the book on Amazon, go to soul in and email your, you know, your receipt. We'll send you four, three chapters from the book. So you can start reading today and four bonus chapters that I wrote after the book was published. So it's soulinagame.net. Got it. And then if they want to, if we, people want to learn more about you on the, on the business side, uh, how, yeah. how can they do that? I would suggest they subscribe to my articles first uh-huh. on contrarianedge.com, contrarianedge.com, or listen to my podcast on investor.fm. And then after that, if they can, you know, if they want to reach out to us, they can, but uh, I would start with my articles first. Sounds good. Vitaly, thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. We'd love to have you on again at some time in the future. Buck, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Be right back.
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And again, I think the moral of the story here is a broader background, lots of different interests, curiosity about the world. These are things that will make you better at navigating the world. So I highly encourage you to you know, continue reading not only about real estate and economics, but about all sorts of other things, because these ideas ultimately will, you know, help shape your intellect. And that's really important in the big scheme of things in investing. Anyway, that is it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.